Alright, Romans chapter 8. Start, I'm just going to look at verse 1. We need to take some time on verse 1 tonight for, because of the fact that, as you'll see, many of our translations say something different in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, my, my translation says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody that has a different translation that reads differently, go ahead and read yours. Okay. Someone, what translations do you have? Does anybody have New King James? It says the same thing. Is yours a New King James? Yeah. Keep going. No, no. Keep, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does it stop on those who are in Christ Jesus? No. Or do you have all? Oh, that's what I'm saying. Keep reading. See, I just read the whole verse. Some of you have more to verse 1 than I just read. You don't have the rest of it? I don't have the rest of it. Yeah, that's what I want you to see. Still verse 1? Still verse 1. We're going to deal with why. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right. Alright. See, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now some translations add on, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Some of your translations will have that. Other translations won't. Yours does not. Now, what translation do you have? You have NAS. Now, here's what I want to deal with. We're going to take some time. You have New American Standard. Yours doesn't have it. NIV does not have it. What I want you to understand, we're going to take a little bit of time to help you with that. Because you're going to run across some things like this when you're in a Bible study or in a setting where the preacher's reading or it's up on the screen in a church where your scripture has more or doesn't have that. There's a reason why. Actually... The oldest manuscripts don't have what you have in the, that verse that's been added. Um, the, the, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The oldest manuscripts, when I say by the oldest manuscripts, the ones that we have that go back closest to the original ones that were written, do not have those added passages, or that added section to that verse. As you find more recent, if you will, manuscripts, of course they're very, 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 very old, but they're at least closer to us than they were to the originals uh, in that sense. Uh, um, they, over time, the scribes added the first section. Actually, in some translations or manuscripts, it will say, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh. Then as you find some that are a little bit older, you'll find that the scribes had added that last little bit, who do not walk, but who walk according to the Spirit. Now, there are two main sets of manuscripts that, that translators use when they in, translate the Bible from the original languages to what we have in English, okay? Now, the two main manuscripts sets, there's two of them. One is smaller than the other. The one that we have more of, more copies, is called Textus Majoris, and there's a lot more of those. But that set is slightly different from this other set, which is Textus Receptus, which is closer to the original. There's less of those manuscripts. Now, I'll make sure you all understand what I'm talking about. When I talk about a manuscript, I'm talking about a handwritten copy of what these people actually wrote. You remember, they don't, they don't have copy machines back then. So whenever Paul would write his letter, how would it get trans? Mitted around, duplicated. They had the scribes would take it and write it, especially the Old Testament. The, the scribes would take the time and write them word for word what it was, and the same kind of a thing. That's how they made copies. We don't have the originals, of course. The originals are long gone. Yet we have found many, 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 and I can't even put enough many's in front of it manuscripts or handwritten copies of the scriptures 
that prove the reality of what we have here. And actually, um, that's one of the ways you can prove that someone actually did write a book is how many manuscripts there actually are. And there is no other book in the entire history of the world that has more copies or more manuscripts than the Bible. By far. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, if that's your thing, go, go look for the, the Case for Christ or the Case for Christianity by Lee Strobel and they really deal with that kind of a thing. Um, but Textus Receptus are the smaller set of manuscripts, but that goes closer to the original, most likely are going to be more accurate to what was really written, right? Over time, we have a lot more manuscripts who have been made copies from those, but over time, they, some things were added. Let me give you an example. Uh, put a bookmark here. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. <laughs> who here is an NIV? Okay. Uh, Rita? Did you say you did or didn't? Okay, I want you to read verse 4. Okay. Go ahead and read read verse 4. John chapter 5, verse (laughs) 4. Go ahead. Suzanne? Yeah, I'm just looking at it. All right, we'll wait for you. I see three and five. Okay, where's four? That's because you don't have four. I have never noticed that before. You've never noticed that before. They start a whole... You'll see why. The number, too. I mean, they, 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 there's a reason why. Do, do, do you have a verse 4, Rita? No, you don't. Go do that half. Well, now, you're in a... Verse 3. Right. And four. then follow 4. I know. You have 4. Mm-hmm. 4 starts with the word 4 in mind. Uh, it's yeah. got a capital. F-U. Right. Now, you have the number 4 there? there? Yes, and it talks about the angels stirring the water? Yes, yes it does. Right. Huh. But the NIV doesn't have it. Now, some people say, oh, the NIV, that's a bad translation. They're skipping verses. No. The translators that translated this translation used the most ancient witnesses, if you will. And if you look at the bottom of your Bible reader, it probably says down at the bottom of the little note, some manuscripts. Does contain the remainder of verse 3, 4, verse 4? Do you see it? Yes, I have. Mine says some less important manuscripts read paralyzed and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and start the waters. In the story of these people who would wait by the pool of Bethesda, and we know that from our King James heritage, or growing up with King James Bible, so that was the main translation we had, we'd always know what the angel would supposedly come and stir the water, and whoever was the first one was healed. Well, actually, that part about the angel stirring the water isn't in the most ancient, if you will, manuscripts are the ones closest to the originals. It had been added later on. Now, we don't know which is right or wrong. So when the translators translated here, they decided, when the NIV people, they decided, let's just leave verse 4 off because it's not in the group that we're translating from. And they made a little note. Now, you're going to run into some problems, though, because down the road you're going to run into, when you get to go to chapter 7, verse 53 of John, go look at John chapter 7. If you see in chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, now your Bibles will have it, but you'll see a line there, right? There'll be probably a line separating... And then there'll be a note that says, Earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses don't even have John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. The whole story of the woman who was thrown at Jesus' feet, those without sin throw the first stone. That story itself is not in some of the most ancient witnesses. It's not there. 
in the ones that we have that are more recent, if you will, it's there. So, the translators now have a decision. It's easy to leave off verse 4. Do we leave off a whole section here? And so they decided not to leave off the whole section, put a little mark in saying, okay, this section right here, though, is not in the most ancient witnesses, but for the easy of flow, we're going to put it in here. I'll show you one more place that's like that. That's in Mark chapter uh, nine, uh, Mark chapter uh, 16. Go to Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. I wrote that one. It's, it's Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Once again, you'll see there's a whole section that wasn't in the ancient witnesses. If you see again, your Bibles that don't have it but put it in have a line again. Ancient earliest witnesses or manuscripts don't have this section. Alright? So what you have now, back in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is... The ancient witnesses just simply say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A little bit later on, some scribe added those who don't walk according to the flesh. Then a little bit later on, another scribe added who walk according to the Spirit. Now, they weren't adding Scripture in a bad way because if you go look at verse 4, they actually just repeating what Paul says in verse 4. Look at verse 4 now. Yeah, and, and 12 as well. But here in verse 4 he says, In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature or the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Chances are that the scribes, when they were copying Paul's letter here to the Romans, felt, if we leave it with, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul's going to be under such attack about this freedom in Christ, the grace in Christ. So they added this, to protect him, or some, some commentators believe, maybe to insulate him from attack. What I want you to understand with him, that's what we're going to deal with tonight is, Paul was simply saying, no ifs, ands, or buts, there's no condemnation if you're in Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation if you're in Jesus Christ. Now, why are we afraid of this? Well, there are a lot of people that say every word in here is divinely given by God, and if scribes say, well, let's add to, <laughs> then where did that come from? Well, and again, this is why when we talk about every word, we're talking about what was really originally written. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about the Bible being infallible and errant, we're talking about when it was written. Now, at the same time, some could say, well, then people could have added things or we could have lost a translation. Anybody that tries to use that excuse, and I'm going to say this as openly as I can, is just showing their ignorance. Because of the fact that we have so many of the ancient witnesses and manuscripts, if you go and do the actual work, you'll find that what we have here is accurate. Now, that's why you're going to see a difference between some translations and others. It depends on which group of manuscripts they were copying from in, you know, in the old languages to translate into English. Your King James was translated from Textus Majoris. They got the bigger, they used the bigger group, which there was more of. They used that group to translate NIV and looks like NAS and others. Was there more than one text there, Now we're getting into a whole lot more. Can I ask? Yes. Because I actually, as you know, I have a computer. Mm-hmm. I've actually got the Textus Receptus here, and it has Romans 8 1 with the King James. Mm-hmm. That, that is, that's, well, there's 
The best way to answer that is, is it really shouldn't look at, I might even have the wrong name for it, but the, the most ancient, ancient witnesses, the ones that we know are the oldest, closest to the original, don't have it. Don't have it. Okay? And so that's what I want you to understand is, if you're going to go to the most ancient ones, all it says is there's no, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now there's a Bible, a wonderful Bible, I've talked to you about before, I'm going to mention it again. If, you, if you're interested in getting it, it's called the Net Bible, N-E-T, the Net Bible. And it is just a Bible that the translators and many different translators from recent times have taken the time with our new knowledge of, of Greek and Hebrew and all the different things. They have put together a translation of the scriptures and they then, in the notes, will tell you why they translated it the way they did. And all the other options that were available to them, and because of context, because of grammatical clues, because of everything. And we came to the conclusion that this was the actual translation because of boom, 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 and boom. It's very deep. It's very detailed. They don't give commentary like some of your study Bibles do, where, where they, they'll tell you what, how to interpret it. They just simply say, this is how we came to the conclusion that it was this word. If you're interested in that, it's a great Bible to have. It's called the Net Bible. All right? And, and uh, I use it a lot when I'm wrestling over what word. I go to that one and say, okay, well, what do they, these guys think, and how did they get there? I'm not less cons are helpful as well. So, All right? So, and we have to go back and remember that we are not trusting in all the people who've translated this through the ages. We are tr- trusting in God and His, his Word, and He tells us it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and He is responsible for bringing it to us in the form He wants us to have it in. And the Spirit in us translating it for us. Absolutely. And so we can trust God with His Word. And we don't need to, to, to question all these people. Well, were these people good translators, or were they not good translators? <laughs> Because God can protect His word, and you drive yourself crazy too, worrying about that kind of stuff as well. One of the best ways you can tell whether or not this is a good translation or interpretation, if you will, is check it with the context of the whole of Scripture. And again, these translations that are out there, they're all good. They're all really good. Some are better for study than others. Like for the message, for example. Hope you understand. The message is not a translation. It's a paraphrase. But it's excellent if you're wanting it just for the purpose of worship. Where someone has taken the scripture, rewritten it in a paraphrase, it's wonderful. Don't use that as your study. As well, what does the word Paul actually use? Because it's not Paul's words. It's somebody else. I forgot his name now. The guy who, who put together... Eugene Peterson put together the message. But like I say, there are many different translations out there. I simply started off this way to show you, as you were study, you would you'd be in a Bible study and say, well, he didn't finish reading verse 1. Actually, in my translation, I did. And if I had done the study to find out, the, the NIV translators used the most ancient witnesses. Now, in answer to that question now, why are we afraid of Paul saying, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Why are we afraid of that? Romans 7. Shall we go on sinning? Yay! Yeah, if there's no condemnation now for in Christ... I just do whatever I want. And so over the years, because of the fear of people misusing the truth of grace, the church has come up with a bunch of rules. 
And what I want you to hear is we're going to be looking through Romans chapter 8 today. Is Paul has just spent chapter 7 dealing with the fact that we still struggle with sin, but it's not us, it's not our new nature, it's the flesh that we're still dealing with. Remember, it's not me, sin living in me that's doing it. And so he has just in chapter 5 talked about how we're at peace with God. We were his enemies, and he died for us when we were his enemies. We have now been made at peace with God. He then, after dealing with the wonderful message of the fact that you are forgiven, you are righteous in the eyes of God, you're already holy because of God's plan and His, and his will, and His justification statement, if you will, and His imputing you righteousness, after making that statement, he then deals with these hypothetical questions that could come up. Well, okay, so are you saying that we can do this? Paul then, as you remember, said... By no means. We, we died to that way of life. Why even try to go that way? You don't understand what we've been given if you want to try to use it for a license to sin. The scripture even says in another place, don't let your, use your freedom as a license for sin uh, and all. And then he goes into why we still struggle with sin. And now in chapter 8, he comes back to where he left off in chapter 5, just celebrating the fact that we are free in Christ. You are righteous. Now, if you are going to be disobedient as a child, your Heavenly Father will discipline you. But He will never judge you. He will never condemn you. He will never even punish you for your sins. Because if you think that God's going to have to punish you for your sin, what He did to Jesus was not enough. He fully punished sin at the cross with Jesus Christ. Now, as a loving parent, if you continue to do things that are not best for you, he's going to work things out in your life to get you back on the path that he wants you to be on. And it may even be painful uh, during that process of pruning. But do not think it's condemnation. Do not think it's God getting me because of my sin. You are free in Christ. You have been given righteousness. If anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation, and there's no condemnation. Okay? Isn't that awesome? When it really sinks in, it's a wonderful thing. Go ahead, Sue. I think that it's probably harder to not condemn in your own heart somebody else, like your kids living a different lifestyle than they know. And so, therefore, we start to want to judge or feel like if we don't judge and if we don't say more, then we're not good Christians either. We're condoning it. That's what, it, you know, sometimes you feel that way. I got these situations in my family with my son, and I find that the more I shut up, the more God works. Yes. But we have to learn that the hard way, don't we? Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we think, and you're right, because of the fact that we feel like if I say the right things, I can get them to behave themselves. Well, if we live long enough, we realize it doesn't work. They don't listen. They don't listen. I'm dealing with, with the church. What's funny is that they're not comfortable that they would never tell you that. Right. I, I have a son coming who's, who has a common-law wife over many years, like more than 15. They're not staying at my place. I didn't say because you live the way you do, you can't stay. I say you are more than welcome. Please stay. But he's the one that must not feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is a gift. It's a gift to me to just say, feel like the Lord saying, just keep love. It is hard. But the reason why, let's go back to Romans now, chapter 8, verse 2. The reason why Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life 
has set me free from the law of sin and death. Alright? For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, we, did, we dealt with that last week, how the law is holy and pure, but because of our flesh, it caused us to want to now break it. What the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by sinful nature, God did. Past tense. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Now, what we're going to deal with next in this next section is, I'm going to throw something out to you as a, as a question. I'm going to read a passage, I'm going to ask you a question, and you have to tell me which, which way this passage is going. But Paul has just finished saying here that these righteous requirements might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. When he talks about living according to the sinful nature or according to the flesh, some of your translations say, versus according to the Spirit, and that's what my question is going to be, and then I'll read this. Is he talking about those who are lost? When he says those who live according to the sinful nature and those who live according to the spirit of the saved? Or is he talking about Christians who struggle sometimes with the flesh when he talks about those who live according to the sinful nature versus those who live according to the spirit? You understand my question? We're, we're about, you can't answer yet. We're going to read this section. But, what, but uh, when, when I read this next section, when he talks about those who live according to the flesh versus those who live according to the spirit, is he talking about lost people as opposed to saved people? Or is he talking about Christians who struggle with the flesh as opposed to the Christians who live according to the spirit? Alright? So I'm going to read you the next section, verses 5 through um, through 11. And I'm going to have you answer what, which one you think it is, but you have to tell me why. Okay? From Scripture. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is alive, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. So as Paul's dealing with the contrast between the, those who live according to the flesh, those who live according to the Spirit, who are these people? Is it the lost versus the saved, or the Christian struggling with the flesh versus the Christian who's living in the Spirit? And if so, why? Janet says, let's go. You say lost versus the saved, and why? Because it says, the one under the sinful nature does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Did you hear that? Janet got it right. Context. Gold star. People, people have struggled with this because they've tried to read into it the Christian who's still struggling with the flesh. This is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about those who don't have the Spirit versus those who do. Remember how we looked at in chapter 7? How he said, I find this law at work when I want to do good, he was right there. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. Here he's saying... The person who's in the flesh can't. But then he goes, look, look at verse, uh, verse 9. 
How did you say it? How did it start in some of your translations? However, you are not in the flesh. However, However, you are different. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if Christ lives in you. So listen to this very carefully. Do you still struggle with the flesh? Yes. Are you controlled by the flesh if you're a child of God through Jesus Christ? No. No. You are not controlled by the flesh. You're still going to be tempted. You're still going to have that issue of sin dwelling in you. But it's not who you are. As Shannon so wonderfully pointed out a couple weeks ago, when you sin, you're sinning against your nature. It's not who you are. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You're a new creation. You were a sinner. You're not a sinner anymore. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And if the Spirit of Christ is in you, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, you are controlled by the Spirit of God. You are seen by God himself as righteous and holy and he's going to be working with you lovingly not condemning you and he's going to get you where he wants you to be and as we keep reading you're going to see this get even more and more clear but But, you may you may give into that information yes we all do Paul even said "I, I still give into it but who can save me from this body of death thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who already has in a sense Okay, now. And so, go ahead. Professing Christians who try to lead a Christian life, but don't always, and know that they're in the wrong. They're Christians, but they're struggling with flesh, and they're miserable. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, but part of the problem is, is they think. All right, I know I'm struggling with sin, and I know I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to try to do better, and they're going to fail. Because apart from Him giving you the victory, you can't. They might even pray prayers like, Lord Jesus, help me. He doesn't want to help you. He wants to do it. And so these, these Christians don't understand who they really are or how to put into practice the truth of what the Scripture says. But they try to justify their lifestyle and what they do. Yeah, well, that's, that means they're further down the road, unfortunately, than, they, than we wish they would be. But the neat thing is, is that if they're a child of God, God's going to finish what He started. He's going to bring them back around. And He lovingly will do it. If He has to turn up the heat, He will in time. But He does it because it's best, best, best for us. But it's not because we're condemned. It's not because He's going to punish us for our sins. It's He's lovingly get us where, getting us where He wants us to be. And, all. and I, I, I shared this with you, I think, last week. If not, I, forgive me because uh, I, I lose track of what I've said where and all my travels. But I ran across this Christian website, which part of their doctrine of beliefs was Christian maturity and growth comes through believing God's promises. And I read that and I thought, that's it. It's not from trying harder or reading your Bible more or praying more. Christian growth and maturity comes through believing God's word and his promises. When you really let this sink in, you, however, are not controlled by the flesh if the Spirit of God is in you. Well, I feel like I am. Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says you're not. And then at the last part of the section we just read, look at verse 11. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. We still struggle with sin, but you know what? If the one who lives inside of me is the one who gave Jesus victory over his body, he'll give me victory over my body too. We quench the Spirit sometimes. And we grieve the Spirit a lot. How do we quench and grieve the Spirit? By not believing and not trusting and not resting in him doing what he said he would do. So I want this to sink in because you're going to see this all of a sudden get developed even more and build. 
not up to you to start doing this better. It's God who works in you to do this. You need to believe it, and you need to live like He's going to do it, and when you trust that He will, and has, and will finish what He started, you will see Him give you victory over these struggles, over these this sin and temptations. You will see it start to fade and go away, because He will then be allowed to do what it is He does. And like I say, in time, we'll see this even getting more clear. And that, that implies a submission to your life. Yeah, without question. Let's believe that He's going to do it. I'll go out to you as a pastor. Stand there and say, yeah, you can't. Even if you say stand there and say no, um, he's going to still keep working to get you where he wants you to be. You just going you know, it's going to make it a little rougher on yourself. But when, as a pastor now, and as a like travel and speak and give invitations to places, I don't challenge people to rededicate their lives anymore. I'll be honest with you. With my deeper understanding of what the Scripture really teaches, I'm not much for rededications because typically a rededication is I'm going to live for God. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm. Exactly. And what are we doing? We're trying to supercharge the flesh. Doesn't work. Now, i got no problem with someone saying, I've been away, but I'm back. But it's the Lord now who's going to be in control. I have no problem with that. But I wouldn't rededicate yourself, folks. Just surrender. <laughs> Just surrender. But we worry about those that we what do you do in those situations when you worry about those exactly what you do, and you're going to see this now get even more clear Lord you said you'd finish what you started if they're your child do whatever you got to do to bring them to bring them back you know we've always said if we can just get them in church right you ever thought that if we can just make them come to church or if we could if, we could just, if, if they could have just heard that message oh I wish they were here they would have heard that message God I'm leaving that one to you. And as much as we care, as much as we hurt for a child or a relative, he cares even more. Therefore, Lord, I don't need to have ulcers about this. You know my heart. You know my passion. You know how I feel. You care more than I do. It goes back to, though, knowing how much God loves us and accepting that. Because we can accept it for ourselves and we can accept that He's loved everybody else the same way. And we can leave them in His hands because the trust is there. Why do we feel like that we're supposed to do something? Because we're human. Yes, and? We want to fix it. We want to fix it. And we've been taught in the church over the years that you didn't do what you were supposed to do. That's not big enough. That's not what the Bible has taught, and unfortunately we've been taught that. Go now to chapter 8, verses 12 uh, through, uh, 12 through 17. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because, of the, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are, eight, are sons of God, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Alright? Now, what I want you to see here is... My page is different stuff. There we go. Paul is now saying, well, actually, what I want to do real quick is have you compare verse 13 with Romans 6.23. Alright? Look at verse 13. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Alright? Again, sure sounds like if you do it wrong, you're going to get it. But if you do it right, you're going to be okay. Right? Doesn't it kind of read that way? Yeah. Somebody read Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Alright. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. Everlasting or eternal life. If God has given us freely eternal life, can a Christian, by living according to the sinful nature, die? Yes. Perfect How? Is he talking about Christians? Again, you've got to understand from context, Paul is still delineating the difference between those who are living according to their flesh and those who are of the Spirit. It's not possible if for us to live according to the sinful nature and die, because the Bible already said we have been given eternal life. Go real quick with me, put a bookmark here. Go to uh, John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. This is as Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's a conversation with Martha. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies physically. And whoever lives and believes in me will what? Never die. Do you believe this? He says to her. So now, back in this context of Paul, writing in chapter 8, verse 13, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. Is he talking to believers? He can't be. Because a believer can't die spiritually. Well, how do we know whether that's spiritual death or physical death? All right, well, that's a good question. Well, how, can, how can you know? Every human being will die. Right. That's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but some people do die, Rick, what I'm thinking, some people do die early because of their lifestyle. Right. Agreed. Now, this is a really good point, because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul does say, uh, because some were taking the Lord's Supper incorrectly, some were sick and some were dead, uh, Ananias and Sapphira definitely died earlier uh, because of sin, but that's a really good question. How can we now, according to this passage, know whether he's talking physical death or spiritual death? Context. context. I heard someone say context. Now, let me just... He can't go against his word. He already said it is appointed under a man once to right. die. If he says, if you do this, you'll never die, he's not talking he already told us we're physically going to die. Mm-hmm. How can we say, well, if you live this way, you will die. If you right. live spiritually, you will. So it's obvious that the live part is spiritual. Do you see that? What you're just pointing out is the, the, the live part is spiritual. The die part is also spiritual. You see what I'm saying? He's not saying if you live by the simple nature, you'll die physically. But if you live by the spirit and put the death and misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Spirit, you know what I'm saying? In context, he's talking spiritual death and spiritual life both. Go ahead. And he says, I am the resurrection and mm-hmm. the life. You can't have a resurrection if there hasn't been a death. And at this point, he hasn't died yet. We know, the time being God, that, you know, it's all happened. Mm-hmm. But he's talking about the resurrection is he died He died for our sins. Right. He's done. Mm-hmm. And so it has to be spiritual. Because otherwise there would be no way to resurrect. 
But there's a nuance to the wording there, too, because in the NIV it says, but if, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, which implies it's the Spirit doing that work in you. So we go back to verse 11, just two verses prior. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit. And go back to verse 10. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. He's still delineated. He's now good to verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we, remember the difference, you, however, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Why? Because we have already died to the sinful nature. Remember? That's been put to death. But not all ways to live that. Now, you may try to go that way, and, and God may lift you for a time, but why are you trying to resurrect something that's already been put to death? He's saying those who live that way, they're going to die spiritually. But for those of us who have Christ, it, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, which verse 10 said he already did, you're going to live. So, we're on the life side, folks. If you're in Christ, you're on the life side. So you might as well just start living by it. You might as well just accept it, enjoy it, live it. You're on the good side. And live out of the joy of that. Stop living under the fear of God might get me if I don't live right. And then what does he say next to those who might worry about uh, the, the fact that God might get me if I don't live right? Look at verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry... Abba, or Daddy, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, does this change the teaching, the fact that if you walk in continual disobedience, that as a child of God, He'll take you home early? It doesn't change that at all. But this passage is not talking about, if you do that, you're going to die physically. That's not what it's talking about. He's still just delineating those who live according to sinful nature, who don't have the Spirit, they're going to die. Why would you even going to go down that road? That's the end result for those people. Why do you want to go back down that road? It's taking them to death. Let me give you an example of what some God just showed me just recently. We have a tendency sometimes to think, how close to sin can we get? You know, we ever have people say, well, what point is the, you know, what point do I actually sin? What is the step over line? And, and to be honest with you, and, and, and it's kind of a sick illustration, but it's, it's something that will help you understand it. But back around the time of Clinton's pre- presidency, when the Monica Lindsay scandal happened, you would not believe... How many people, I was pastor in Chicago at the time, how many people made appointments with me to find out if oral sex was okay in the eyes of God? Is that really sex? If me and my boyfriend, or, or me and my girlfriend, if we do this, is it okay? And the question is simply, how close to sin can we get without stepping over the line? The sad thing is, when you even do that, you're first of all saying, I want to get as far away from God as I can without getting in trouble instead of how close to God can I get. But the worst part is this. You, when you think about how close to sin can I get without stepping over the line, you're actually saying, I want to go play with Satan. And what we don't realize is, Satan hates your guts. If he had the chance, you would be dead right now. And no, not a quick death either, a violent, horrific death. He hates us. We're God's creation, his prize of his creation. He hates God. He hates us. We were made in his image. And you know what? I was preaching today to a men's group at Central Baptist today about the demoniac who was healed of the legion of demons. 
It's very interesting. Here, this guy's got a legion of demons inside of him, and he's, he's acting so crazy that they can't bind him. They try to chain him, and he breaks the chains, and he's living out among the tombs. And I'm sure that there were some people that thought, well, yeah, he's just acting a little nuts. You know, maybe he's got a mental condition. But when the demons saw Jesus, they said, please don't send us out of the area. And they then said, please send us into the pigs. Jesus said, you're allowed to go into the pigs. As soon as they left the man and went into the pigs, what did the demons do to the pigs? They all jumped, 2,000 of them all at once, off a cliff, and they all died instantly. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is no one said, well, those pigs acted a little strange. You know, it was obvious, these demons are nasty fellows. They hate you. Satan asked for permission to mess with Job. And God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. You cannot touch him. But you can do anything else you want. What happens? He kills every single one of his children. Takes all of his possessions away. When, it, when that hand of protection was removed, instant destruction. The only person he left was his wife. And we find out later on why. Because unfortunately, she was already on his team. And, and, and I'm not saying that to be funny. I'm saying that because Satan said to God, if you let me do this, Job will curse you to your face. Then what does she say when the second one? She, she said, word for word, Satan's words, curse God and die. And why was she speaking his words? She was already on his side. Then God says, you can touch Job, but you can't take his life. Actually, she said, bless God and God. No, she didn't. She said, are you holding on to your integrity? She says, curse God. It literally says, curse God and die. It's in Job chapter 2. Should we read it? Yeah, you can go ahead and take a look. Job. Is it I know, that's what it says in King James. Someone have a King James? Job chapter 2. Nice. Verse 9. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Is that what it says in all things? No. Yeah. I, have, I have a doctor who was in the seminary. He said, This seminary teacher said, Joel's wife was the most maligned woman in the Bible. Well, unfortunately, this, I hate to say it, this person was, was incorrect. She didn't tell him to bless him. Yeah, the literal literal translations of bless God and die. But it's not in the sense of praise God, unfortunately. That is like say. Yeah, and that's the thing. But what I want you to understand is this if Satan had the chance, you you would be dead. Why do we want to even go tiptoe in his direction? It's like me, I've fooled a lot of uh, with venomous snakes. How close can I get to this guy before I get bit? Same, same principle. Yeah. yeah. It is. And this is what, now back in, 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 in uh, Romans chapter 8, this is what Paul is saying. Folks, for those who don't have this regeneration of the Spirit, then destruction is death. We, though, have an obligation to live not according to that but according to the Spirit, because of this wonderful gift that He's given us. Alright? And so, and then as we've already looked at, because we're His children, we're heirs, we're co-heirs with Christ, if we share in His sufferings, we'll share in His glory. And now in verse 18 and following, Paul then goes on to say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 
The creation waits in the eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption as sons, which is the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Now look at this awesome passage here. He then talks briefly about the fact that we're going to suffer in this life, this is part of it, but we're going to share in his glory. And then he says, that I consider that the suffering we have is not even worth being compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. And then he goes on to this very interesting topic here, and he says, the creation, all of creation, not just us, is eagerly waiting for what? The redemption of our bodies, which is the rapture. The sons of God to be revealed. When the rapture occurs, those who have already gone to be with him, who are with him, they don't have their body yet. Their body's going to come up out of the ground. They're going to get their new heavenly bodies. We who are alive are going to be transformed and caught up and changed during that time. When the sons of God are going to be revealed at that time, those who aren't, who think they are, or better way to put it, or playing the game, who aren't, are actually going to be left behind. You know, that's when it's going to happen. The creation itself is waiting for that day. Back when Adam and Eve sinned, God put a curse on the land. It says in 19, the anxious longing of the creation mm-hmm. waits eager for the revealing of the sons of God. I've heard somebody just recently put the, the earthquakes and the, mm-hmm. and the upheaval on the earth and the tornadoes and all that stuff are just the earth itself groaning, <laughs> waiting to be freed back up to its beautiful condition. Yeah, yeah. It says free from corruption. Yeah. Yep. The rotting will stop. Yeah, the rotting will stop. Yes. Rust won't happen anymore. And all that kind of stuff. It's just it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. But then, look at verse 26 and listen to it in this way. God is not sitting back waiting for you to do the right thing. Alright? And then he'll bless. God is actively working on your behalf to get you where he wants you to be. He's doing the work. Look at this. this. The same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't even know how we ought to, what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot even express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Uh, you're gonna need, uh, I can't teach on this one enough for you tonight anyway, time-wise. I want you to go home and I want you to spend some time just meditating on those few verses here, verses 26 uh, and 27. Really let the Spirit of God speak to your heart about the fact that God himself is interceding on your behalf. And you don't even know what you ought to pray for. And he's not waiting until you figure it out. He's actually interceding on your behalf in accordance with the will of the Father. God's Spirit is is actually praying for you. That's just man, that's just a wonderful, wonderful thing when you really look at it. Too deep for words. I can't even put into words even how awesome that is. That the Spirit of God is actually working on our behalf, even when we don't even realize it. We don't even realize it. Take your illustration of family members again who aren't as they ought to be. 
Are you not sometimes praying on their behalf? Are you not many times interceding with groans that they wouldn't even understand unless they were in that position themselves? And your Heavenly Father, in the same way, not just when you're away, but even as you're growing. For, I'll give you an example. Uh, tonight, Nicole and I were playing a game before I left the house. And I like to tease. And, and uh, I found this woman before I left over from covering something from dinner. So I wrinkled it up. And right before I left the house, take Nicole with it. Well, then I'm getting in the van and she comes running out into the garage and, and tries to throw it in my door. And I shut the door and lock the door in the van. So she runs around knowing that Becky has to get in her side. And so when Becky gets in her side, she throws it in the door says, got you, and she takes off. But I quickly picked it up and rolled the window down and we're going to get her in the garage before she get back into the house. So she decides to wait over on the passenger side because she knows I can't get her. So now I'm driving out of the garage carefully. I roll the window down and, uh, and I throw it at her real quick then put the garage door down, but I missed. And uh, so she picks it up and she laughs and dances in the garage. Like, hey. While we're driving over here, the phone rings. My cell phone rings. That's Nicole. And she says, you have just been paid. And she hung up the phone. <laughs> well, she was expecting me to call her back. To call her and say, well, you've been paid. But actually, he Becky and I were... two minutes before he figured out that she was... Yeah, I was actually still... I was like talking back with her and I was like, hey, man, she hung up the phone. She so, I was, Becky and I were talking about the Bible study as we're coming over here. And then just before we get into the apartment, uh, the condos here, my phone rings. And it's Nicole. I said, what's going on? He goes, I thought you were going to call back. I'm just making sure you weren't mad at me for a long time. And I hurt. I was like, honey, no, I, I love you. It was good when I was proud of you. I was going to get you when I got home tonight. But, honey, please don't, I don't want you to ever be worrying about, is dad mad at me? It hurt me to even think that she, even for that little time, would think, dad, I'd be mad. If I care that much my Heavenly Father even when I'm with Him with groans that I can't understand the Spirit is praying on my behalf that I would grow in this relationship that I would enter into the joy of this love relationship with Him that I would enter into the freedom of being His child and no longer have fear, oh God's going to get me and I would enter into the joy of saying, Abba Daddy he allows us to call him that. Isn't that cool? The creator of the universe. The creator of the universe. He allows us to call him Isn't it sad that over the years the church has said, you better watch? Jesus says, no. The fear is the beginning of wisdom. That's good. But perfect love will cast out fear. Because it has to do with punishment. You have now entered in. Well, I still struggle with sin. Well, that's because of the flesh, Paul says. But if you're in Christ... There's no condemnation. And you don't even realize it, but the Spirit of God is interceding on your behalf with groans you don't even know, and He's praying according to the Father's will for your life. God is for you. I, I want my kids to live out of the joy of knowing that I'm going to correct them when some things need to be corrected, but it'll never change how I feel about them. And even my correction is coming from my love for them and wanting them to be everything God wants them to be. And my Heavenly Father feels the same way. Satan still whispers in her ear, God's going to get you for that. Oh, your kid is sick because you didn't. Satan will whisper in your ear and say, well, your homeowner's insurance got canceled. That's because God's trying to get your attention and tell you you should have. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. 
And as you've done that in mind, keep going. And we know that in all things, look closely now, I underline in my Bible all the times it says God or He. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God for you, He also predestined to be conformed to the image or the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those He predestined, He also called, those He called, He also justified, those He justified, He also glorified. Who's doing all the work? God. We didn't capitalize those He, so I was that capitalized. Good for you. That's fine. That's good. But here's the deal. Who's doing the work? God is. What? How do we grow in our relationship with the Lord? We accept by faith His truth, His promises, and that's how you grow. In verse 28, reminds us, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He is, he is, if you want to say manipulating, He is working it all out to get us to that point of perfection. Every situation we go through every single day is to get us that step closer to the image of Christ that He's working out in each of us. We've got time to finish. Folks, I really want you to sink this in because God gave me something kind of cool to wrap this up with in this little bit here. But I want this to sink in. Because when we go through struggles, when we go through trials, we go through situations like Janet asked for prayer about in our life, we, we have tend to worry of fear. How's it going to work out? Or will he come through? Or am I not in good enough standing that he might not? You know, all this kind of stuff. And look what Paul says. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? As it is written, for your sake, Lord, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is an amazing, amazing passage. And honestly, you have to read it a ton. Uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Herbert Lutzer, pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, has been quoted as saying that if he had to do it all over again, as a pastor, he would have, from the beginning, had every new believer spend the first month of their salvation meditating and studying on Romans chapter 8. And he said we would have seen far more growth as Christians, baby Christians, if Christians would grasp this first. Most of us Christians are in that process later in life of finally starting to grasp Romans chapter 8. He said that he wishes that he had started by making every new believer get Romans chapter 8. Now, here, go ahead. You're about to say something? Okay, I thought I heard you make a noise like you're about to say something. Just today I was talking with uh, Donnie Lake, a friend of mine who travels around preaching as well, and uh, 
he shared with me something God opened his eyes to, and I thought it would be a perfect conclusion to our study tonight. <laughs> he talked about how uh, David was fighting Goliath. And if you look at the story, David doesn't look like he has any fear. And you think about it, how would, how would a 13-year-old boy have no fear against this giant? And then God opened Donnie's eyes to the fact that in the chapter just before the David and Goliath story, Samuel had come and just anointed David to be the next king of Israel. In other words, God has said, you will be the next king of Israel. And so in his mind, in David's mind must have been, when he was standing before Goliath, I'm not king yet. God has said, I'm going to be king. So he ain't going to kill me. I'm going to win. Because God has already said, here's what's going to happen next. Hadn't happened yet. Therefore, I'm not afraid of this one. Isn't that cool? It gets better. Then you, then you go to a situation where uh, Paul is on the island of Malta. And the snake comes up out of the fire and bites him on the hand. Everybody says, oh, he's going to die because it's a bad snake. Paul shakes it off. Well, see, just prior to that, while they're on the boat, God himself came with an angel of the Lord and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You will speak to the authorities in Rome. Paul gets bitten by the snake. This ain't Rome. God said, I will be in Rome, so this ain't going to kill me. I'm going to just move on because I'm not in Rome yet. God said it. I believe it. Peter is now in prison. James has already been killed. In Acts chapter 12, Herod has just had James, the brother of John, put to death. He found it pleased the Jews. And so he has Peter arrested, has him put in prison. He's next to be killed. And I'm sure the jailers were saying, this time tomorrow you're going to be dead, Peter. What would you like? Peter, would you like a cigarette? Would you like something to drink? What's your last meal? What would you like? And uh, Donnie said, Peter called said, I'd like a mirror, please. A mirror? What do you want a mirror for? As he gets in the mirror, he looks at it and he says... I'm not old, so I guess I'm not dying tomorrow. Because in John 21, Jesus met back up with Peter after Jesus rose from the dead. And he said, Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself and whooped in your water. But when you're old, you will be led and tied and you stretch out your hands and this how you're going to die from me. Jesus said, it's going to happen when I'm old. I'm not old yet. So Peter went to sleep that night. Here they're saying, tomorrow you're going to be dead. He goes to sleep so deep the angel has to slap him awake. <laughs> he had a great night's sleep. Why? Because God said, this ain't going to happen until I'm old. I'm not old yet. This isn't the time. And what happens is, and Becky brought this out, and she and I were talking about this on the way over tonight. We unfortunately start to question whether God really said it. Or whether he meant it for us. When you come across your trials and your hardships and things that come up like we talk about, the, here's, you know, here's another thing, how am I going to pay this bill, how are we going to do this? We need to say, God has said He will provide for all of my needs. Therefore, this is another one. It will be met. I'm going to go forward in faith looking for how He's going to do it, but I'm not going to be worried about it because He said He would. He will. And it's time that Christians today lived in this kind of boldness, this kind of faith. If he would give us his own son, what's he going to withhold from you? What's he going to, oh, we're going to face trials and hardships. Yeah, for his sake, it's going to happen. We're going to be considered a sheep to be slaughtered. There's going to be times Satan's going to ask for permission to mess with us, and God's going to set the parameters, and he's going to let them. But it's always for our growth. It's always for our best. And we need to, especially in these days to come, be willing to say, yeah, this looks like this snake might bite, might kill me, but God said it wouldn't. 
so it won't. I'm not going to be able to feed my family. God said he would make sure that his children never were begging bread. Therefore, I will. He'll take care of it. And we move forward in faith. If you don't got it yet, spend some more time in chapter 8 this week. Really let God speak to your heart. And trust the fact that he's not waiting for you to do the right thing and then he'll bless. He's actively working right now whether you realize it or not. And how you grow is you just start believing his promises. Questions? Things like that before we wrap up? Well then, as you start living it that way, he will start showing you and opening your eyes to where he provided and where he did things so that he can say, you know what? My glory. Yep. Not your glory. For his My glory. glory. It's always his glory. I've got it. Keep looking at me. Eyes on. We'll be good. What you just said about I will supply all your needs. There's lots of promises like that all through the Bible. And I want the explanation. I don't want the promise. Explain how. Yeah, that's a good point, Jim. That's a good point. We want the explanation. We want the promise. Yeah. It ain't just trust me. It's a promise from me to you. Yeah. That's it. Let me pray for us. Father, again, I thank you for this chance to come and study your word. And I thank you that every time we finish, it, there's a sweetness in here. And it's because of the fact that your word is so awesome and you are so awesome and you're here, you're in us, you're amongst us and your word is alive, we're holding it in our hands and you're holding you in our hands. I mean, Jesus, you are the word. It's hard for us to even fathom that, Lord, (laughs) we're going to go through questions and trials and it's going to look like we're about to be slaughtered or the snake bite's about to kill us or the latest decision by this person or that company is about to bring us down. Father... May we live in full obedience like we read about in the scriptures. But it's because these individuals believed that what you said was true. And may we believe that you're for us, you're not against us, that you're doing everything for our best and for our growth and for our maturity. And Lord Jesus, may we live in obedience to you. Lord, when we're tempted to run down that road of the flesh, may we be reminded that it's really not as pretty as it looks. And for those who don't have your spirit, it's going to lead them into death. Why would we want to go down that path? May we understand that you have, by your power, put to death the misdeeds of the body. And if you are able to do that in your body, and living within us, you'll do that in our bodies. May we just rest in that. Forgive us for trying to do better and asking you to help us do better. Today, may we accept that you're going to do it. And thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.